I think that the church is supposed to be a culture-changing entity. We're all born into a culture. We're supposed to apply the biblical principles to that culture and change it so that it becomes godly. So the good things in that culture, you know, are held up and applied to the kingdom of God. And only the sin is put to the side. You are listening to the Christian Music Archive podcast, part of the New Release Today podcast network. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. Each week, I share stories about Christ, community, and music, chatting with musical guests who you will find listed on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. There are thousands of creative men and women who have helped shape the soundtrack of the Christian faith, and we get to hear their stories, learn about how Christ has made a difference in their life, and hopefully along the way, we'll learn how we can be a better part of our community. Back in the early 80s, I was starting to discover a bunch of rock music that was Christian-based. This is music that sounded like the stuff my friends at school were listening to, but had positive lyrics, and I was really getting into this new music style. But I was also introduced to an album called The Vigil. Now, this was a little bit of a different sound. It was a little bit more classical and not really something I was into, but it was kind of interesting, kind of like the Phil Kagey Master and Musician album, just something a little bit different. I also heard a great art rock album by a group called Archangel. Now, why am I mentioning these two albums? Well, to my surprise back then, both of these albums were driven by the same guy, Kemper Crab. This was the first time that I remember hearing two completely different styles of music coming from the same guy. So I hope you'll stick around and hear my conversation with Kemper today and hear a little bit about how his musical influences has shaped his music. Well, we're going to jump into our interview in just a minute, but I've got Doug Hoffman, Executive Director for Mercy Inc. with us again today. And today we're going to talk about a project called the Jesus Well Project. Yes, thank you, Dave. The Jesus Well Project is in South Asia. It's been a process for the last eight years. We've been drilling wells across South Asia, uh, water wells. They're going down 700 to 1,000 feet. Why do we need water wells? They have water at the top. In fact, it's basically sitting on a floodplain, the whole thing, but it's full of arsenic. Oh. So, you know, yeah, they have drinking water, those kind of things, but... It's poisoned. It's poisoned. Yeah. And it's slowly just, you know, deteriorating the people. So, so we got to go deep. We got to go below that layer and then below the layer a little bit further. So we're drilling those wells in in villages across South Asia. And the beauty part is, all they know exactly where the water's at because Japan during World War II mapped out the entire area where the where the where the water is. So they're not many uh, dry holes. Let's uh -huh. put it that way. Um, so that's being done, and we put a we put a hand pump on there, and it's a nice blue pump. Uh, and we put what's tagged on there, Jesus Wells. Now, keep in mind, most of these wells are being drilled in Hindu okay. or Muslim villages. Ah. So we also then, Jesus Wells, so it's an opportunity to bring them to Christ. Along with that, we do provide some spiritual material, material information for them. And it's so it's a life-changing experience. And oftentimes we follow that back up and planting churches within those areas. So it's a wonderful, wonderful ministry. So one little piece that you might be interested in, uh, uh, we're currently, um, there's a project where five million Muslims are coming together on one piece of ground. Oh, wow. It's the third largest gathering of Muslims. It's an annual event. 
they always had troubles with water. How do you have water? So we, we got permission to drill wells on that piece of property. So right now we're in the process of drilling. There's three done. Uh, we're hoping for six more to be done here in the next uh, couple of weeks uh, on this property where 5 million Muslims are coming together. And they're going to be a blue, blue pump jack, Jesus well. And so we're going to provide them physical water and living water. Yeah. Uh, as we have an opportunity to witness to, to 5 million Muslims. So if people want to learn how this witnessing happens uh, at these wells, uh, how can they learn more about that? So you can go to our, our website, www.mercycompassion.org. Uh, scroll down, the information is in there. Uh, and we'd love to have you participate with us. You can hit the donate button if you want to help us support, because all this takes money to make it happen. If you're willing to come alongside as a prayer partner, indicate that to us. Or you want to serve uh, just in, in the information box. Let us know. We'd love to have you work with us. Today's guest is a multi-talented musician who has been active in a number of bands. Let's see, there's Archangel, Radio Halo, Atomic Opera. Oh yeah, and he also worked with Cademan's Call for a while, uh, in addition to having a lot of albums of his own. I'm not really sure how to classify Kemper's music. Is it Old English? Is it rock? Is it Celtic? Maybe it's medieval or maybe it's progressive rock. It's probably a little of all of those. But Kemper is much more than just a musician. He's an author, a teacher, and an Episcopal priest. In fact, he's currently working at a Lutheran church. How does that work out? (laughs) Kemper is a true Renaissance man with a medieval bent and a heart for using art to reach people for Jesus. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation with Kemper Crab. Kemper, welcome to the podcast. Well, uh, welcome back, Edge, Dave. I'm, I welcome you into my uh, remote studio. <laughs> now, if memory serves, you you're based in Texas these days, aren't you? That's right. I'm uh, I'm in the Houston Metroplex, and uh, you know, just on the edge of the city. Yeah. So, so uh, it's you know, it's it's a big city, but it's but it's a nice one. But it's home. And from what I've understood, you're uh, kind of a dyed-in-the-wool dyed true uh, Texan at heart. Well, that's exactly right. I, as a matter of fact, I've turned down any number of offers from record labels and stuff like that to move to New York or Nashville or whatever. But, um, you know, once upon a time, I told one of the record labels, they said, well, would you take a job being an A&R guy? And I said, well, uh I had two questions. One was, can I keep my hair long? And they said, yeah. And I said, the other one is, can I work remotely? And they said, well, no, you'd have to move here. So, oh. <laughs> so I turned that down. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, uh, for folks who don't know who you are, I mean, you've got quite the eclectic music style as far as I'm concerned. Um, you've got uh, kind of, uh, the, the I don't know how to describe it, almost old English Celtic stuff. You've got some progressive rock stuff. You've recorded with a couple of bands, let's see, Archangel and Atomic Opera. So, I mean, you're kind of all over the map as far as the sound goes. How would you describe your music to somebody who's not heard you before? Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure <laughs> how to do that. Uh, you know, I, I do record a, a number of different um, styles or genres and stuff. Uh, like I said, Archangel was where I started, and I, I suppose I kind of came up in the you know, rock and roll world, although at that time, you know, back in the 70s, it was 
there was as much uh, folk music as there was rock music. Yeah. And, uh, and I kind of, it's where I cut my teeth and everything. And, and when I started playing, uh, you know, writing and playing Christian music and stuff, which has always kind of been primarily my deal, I, I, uh, there wasn't a CCM marketplace. Right. right. And uh, so, you know, I just made music that was like the people that I listened to, you know, King Crimson and Yes and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, and, and most of that progressive rock, you've got a broad range of styles anyway. Oh, sure. Because uh, that was the whole point of progressive rock is that you blended a bunch of stuff together. So, and like most rock musicians, um, you know, I've been drawn to early music or medieval music or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And uh, so because I had literary interests and historical interests in that period, you know, I, I early on was paying a lot of attention to to medieval and Renaissance music and so forth. And that from time to time would leak into the rock and, and I guess vice versa. But when I, when I started Archangel, um, we kind of started off as a folk rock band made it easier to play in churches, uh-huh. uh, especially because <laughs> in those days, like I said, there wasn't a CCM marketplace. It was, it was in the heyday of the Jesus movement. And so we toured around and played in churches. But, you know, gradually we did heavier and heavier rock. And, and then uh, the record label that I initially signed with, which was which was a very strange thing, it was almost like in the movies or something, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about that really, but yeah. I met these two guys who uh, started Star Songs Records, and and we had a sister band in those days called Hope of Glory, that was from uh, that was from Houston, and okay. and uh, they, those two guys, one of them, Wayne Donahue, was actually in the band. He was the keyboard player, and he and uh, Daryl Harris started Star Song right down here in Houston, and and I'd invited him over to to eat one time after I met him and uh, Daryl came over and he saw I had a dulcimer, a mountain dulcimer sitting in the corner and he said, well, can you play that thing? And I said, I said, yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, he said, well, well, can you play some? So I played a couple of songs and he said, I love those songs. I said, well, oh, thanks. And he said, do you have any more? And I said, yeah, but I'd, I'd need to switch to guitar or something. So that's fine. <laughs> so I played him a bunch of songs and he said, well, we want to sign you. Very cool. And I said, I said, well, you can't sign me. You have to sign the band because I'm in a band. Yeah. And he said, well, when are y'all playing? I said, well, tomorrow night. So they came and heard the band and said, okay. So they signed the band, Archangel, and then they signed me under a, a separate thing. Okay. So after the Archangel album came out, which was a combination of different styles like most art rock bands, Yeah. you know, then I recorded uh, The Vigil, which you, you made mention of. And, and, uh, and then... You know that that was fairly well received, and uh, and that was about the time that there started being a real CCM and stuff. So it, you know, they played some of that on the radio. Some some people were kind of freaked out about it because it had a had a Crusader cyclist on the <laughs> yeah on the front of it, and a lot of people said, "Ah, oh, you know, you're promoting violence and this and that and the other." So it got banned from some places, which which was okay. I mean, the Archangel album had gotten I'd gotten hate mail and you know some of them bought the album and turned the cover inside out and put like satanic symbols on it and said this is what you really are oh wow 
stuff like that. So that, that went on a while. There was some resistance to more <laughs> contemporary forms of music in the in the evangelical world in those days. But the vigil finally kind of, you know, developed a, you know, a, a number of fans or whatever. And as did Archangel before that, but, but uh, you know, and then later on, uh, like most art rock bands, I got more interested in dance music and electronic and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so then I, uh, Archangel became Radio Halo and oh, uh, we right. played, we played, as after I think we only played one church gig in our whole existence. Wow. We played in clubs and and festivals. We did play some Christian festivals. And, and uh, you know, and then for a while I, I filled in. I was in the Hope, in the hope for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the guys was sick, so I played with those guys for a while. And, and somewhere along the way, I, I ended up uh, being a member of Atomic Opera. Those guys were were my parishioners ah. and uh, Frank Hart, who's who was the head of that. Uh, uh, when the when the first rendition of Atomic Opera broke up, he asked me. He said, "Man, I wish you'd come play with me." And I said, "Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of burnt out on guitar." I said, uh, "Can I play mandolin?" And he said, "Sure." So for a while, Atomic Opera was just me and Frank, but we were opening for the Call and stuff like that at the wow. at the clubs here in here in Houston, and, and then finally we added a, a, a guy we had met who was a drummer, who at the time was a Mormon, but hanging out with us, he, he became a Christian, and uh, and Johnny Simmons, and mm -hmm. and plus my, uh, at the time, my roommate, and, and the guy that I always used to engineer, Ryan Bersinger, who plays bass and, and uh, Chapman stick, he joined, and so we recorded, we recorded some stuff uh, for Metal Blade, and, and toured Japan, and and stuff like that, and uh, um, and at the same time, I continued to do solo music and write worship music and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so I find that people who are truly ingrained in music will play music no matter where it is and where you know what it takes to get that music out there because it's kind of who they are. I mean, it's kind of at the core of who they are. So, how did music become so so much of a key part of your life? Well. Um, Growing up uh, in San Antonio, which is which is where I pretty much grew up, okay. my mom was always, she was always into listening to the radio. So from the earliest time I could remember, uh, you know, we listened to the radio, especially R&B stations, or what okay. were called soul stations back then. It was K-A-P-E, the soul of San Antonio. For many years, uh, I listened to that, and then... As I got a little older, uh, first first instrument I ever played was a harmonica, which my father had found. We were, I think, we were camping on the banks of a creek or something. And he found an old Honer harmonica. No kidding. Gave it to me, and I learned how to play it. And then I thought, well, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe I should learn to play guitar. I was, you know, uh, I guess I became a Christian at eleven. Okay. And uh, and by the time I was fifteen, I was singing in choirs and stuff, and and, uh, you know, and then I thought, well, maybe I should learn to play another instrument. So I asked my parents for a guitar and they, they gave me one. And, uh, and then I, you know, just, I began to write songs because, um, the church that I'd gone to had experienced a, a massive revival. One of the, one of the epicenters of the, the Jesus movement. Yeah. So 
you know, I began to want to write music like that. And it wasn't long after that, after I started doing that, that I discovered that on the West Coast, in Casa Mesa and stuff, there right. were a number of Christian bands. So, uh, you know, so then that, you know, that, that gave me some hope to do that. And at the time I was in high school, so I'd started a band uh, called Crimson Bridge, which had horns and stuff like that. And we did music that was a lot like Chicago or, oh, cool. or stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, and I just, I just always, always was interested. I was always listening to music and pretty much followed the, you know, the way that, uh, that rock and pop and stuff like that emerged. So, you know, because I like a bunch of different styles, I ended up being more comfortable in, uh, you know, in, in like what was then called art rock, they call yeah. it progressive now. Yeah. And, uh, but I also, also did a lot of, uh, folk music and was, like I said, very interested in early music. So, you know, I began to learn other languages and study the history of the period, stuff like that, and was amazed that there were actually records of the kind of music they played in the Middle Ages and yeah. stuff. So, yeah. So I, I, once again, I don't know if that answers your question, but I've always been interested in music, whether it was in, in the church or, or even before I was, you know, really kind of had a much cognizance of that. Sure. But, well, it sounds like it was, I mean, this is obviously a gifting that God has given you, and and you just kind of followed that interest and that passion, uh, and it's it's kind of blossomed from there. Well, I think that's true. I mean, I tell people a lot of, a lot of times over the years, people have said, well, you know, I don't know what I should do. Should I, should I be a musician or not? And uh, I said, well, the first part of that question is, are you? <laughs> are you an artist? Uh, right. If you if you look in the mirror and what you see is an artist, and you you know you don't have any kind of negative kind of comment from God or something, then what you are is an artist. And the second part of your question, a lot of times, has to do with the circumstances mm -hmm. or where you are, or the opportunities you have, and the vision you have for your life. What's most important? But you know, if you're an artist, then like you mentioned, you you find a way to create stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as to whether or not it becomes a, a profession or not, depends on what your drive is and what right. your vision is and what you want to do. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, we are created in the image of God, and God is a creator. And so, therefore, you could put two and two together and say, we have creativity built into us because we're created in the image of a creating God. Well, that's exactly right. And really, I don't, I don't actually, uh, even though I talk about art, teach about it, and stuff like that, I don't actually uh, think you can separate mm -hmm. creativity and artistry from pretty much any area of human endeavor uh, whatsoever, whether it's, you know, a housewife raising children or a mechanic or anything like that. Yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's an approach to things that, uh, you know, because we're made in the image of God, you know, he gives us principles. Yeah in every area that we do, and and, uh, and generally, because they are from God, that involves some sort of creative impulse. Well, you mentioned earlier on in your conversation that you became a Christian at, at, at age 11. Uh, That's right. The music was there first, but the, but the love of God came after that, or were they kind of tied together, or how did that play out for you? Well, it wasn't church music, because I, I wasn't super crazy about church music. I mean, my parents, you know, who are Christians— uh, you know, we always went to church, 
but uh, it was it was me hearing the gospel and actually coming home to me that really changed things. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know when I became a Christian, I actually was given to embrace Christ and and became regenerate and stuff. It it changed. It didn't change my love of music, but it certainly broadened it to where I could appreciate a lot of what was happening in the church. Because mm-hmm. at the time, there was it was mostly pretty traditional hymns and so forth. But because I had become a believer, I could grab hold of the lyrics of those hymns and stuff, and I began to appreciate the melodies and so forth. And and uh, so, really, I suppose you know, I was already deeply into music. I, I wasn't that crazy about church music, like I said. <laughs> right. Until I, became a Christian and then it was like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. You know, but, but prior to that, I thought it was fairly, fairly boring and, and generally not well done, mm. you know? So, yeah. Yeah. so that, that kind of put me off initially. Well, so. you said you were born and you know, your parents, your parents were pastors and so forth. What was the event or the trigger, so to speak, that made you realize, I need to make this more than, hey, this is something that we always do on Sunday, to, oh, this is a relationship that I want to have with God? Um, there was a there was a pastor, it was a Baptist church. Um, my dad, you know, grew up Baptist. I think my mm-hmm. mom, when she married him, uh, she was already a Christian, but she she came there. So I was, I was pretty much raised in a Baptist church, and there was a, a pastor in San Antonio named Named Jack Tinney, and he, you know, one Sunday I heard him preach the gospel. I mean, and it, you know, and the spirit like grabbed a hold of me, mm. and I thought, I want to make a, a profession. I want to embrace Christ. And I told my parents, but they wouldn't let me go forward because they didn't think I understood. Huh. So it took me three or four weeks to convince <laughs> my parents that I actually was serious about that. And uh, so then on the day that I went forward and I, I was baptized and all and uh, and um, but I, I I remember when everything changed. I remember when you know when the Holy Spirit kind of quickened that to me and I understood what actually was being preached about and, and what that had to do with me and and my sin and so forth. So, you know, it took like I said, it took my parents a while to get there, but yeah. But that was actually when I became a Christian, and then you know later on I professed faith and got baptized and all that. Well, you know, a lot of people talk about this this earth-shattering event or this this I don't know, you know, hit rock bottom or so to speak, so to speak. But for you, it was that still small voice that Elijah talked about in the in the cave that it just finally struck a chord with you because of what Pastor Tinney was saying. Oh yeah, yeah, it was. Uh... Yeah, that was exactly right. I realized that I was a sinner. I mean, I, I knew before that that I was a sinner, but I mean, I realized that I was responsible for my sin and that, you know, uh, that I deserved, you know, to go to hell for that. Yeah. You know, I knew that. And, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, Christ had come specifically to die for his people and to die for me personally, um, you know, I I understood understood what was being offered Mm -hmm. and I, you know, totally, totally uh, believed it, you know, and wanted Christ to pay for my sins, you know, since he already had. And, uh, and it, it, you know, it, it definitely changed me. Yeah. Definitely changed me. Well, 
for those who know you, what I'm going to ask next is probably, oh yeah, that's old old hat, Dave. We all know that, but uh, music is only a small segment of your life because you went on uh, and you entered the the, the priesthood or the past, became yeah. a pastor. How did that transition take place? I mean, from musician to preacher. <laughs> well, um, when I was 15 uh, is when the, you know, in, in my neck of the woods, mm-hmm. was right about the same time as what was happening uh, in a number of places in Kentucky and places like that. There were kind of epicenters in different parts of the country where the Jesus movement broke out. And, uh, so when that when that happened, uh, it was like all the stories about the Jesus movement. You know, it was it was a bunch of supernatural stuff, and you know, people just being drawn in off the street who didn't know Jesus from JoJo the Monkey Boy, and, <laughs> right? And, and they would just come in and get you know get saved, become Christians, and and uh, you know, there was all kinds of supernatural manifestations, and and uh, you know, people were getting right with their parents and people they were wrong with and repenting of witchcraft. I mean, it just went on and on. And yeah. during that period of time, uh, I felt like God called me to the ministry. Ah. So, you know, I, I, uh, I have never seen my musical engagement as different from or separate from my calling to the ministry. And that's not unusual in the history right. of the church. I mean, Luther and a bunch of people, you yeah. know, who who were ministers also wrote music and so forth, or poetry like Edward Taylor and and uh, stuff like that. And and for me, that was part and parcel of the same impulse. Uh. So even though I felt called to the ministry, I, I didn't think that that meant that. Uh, that the music could also be a part of that. So, so while I engaged in a study and training and so forth, that would ultimately allow me to be ordained and all that kind of stuff. I, uh, I didn't stop doing music. And, uh, in those days, especially, you know, you traveled around, you played, played all kinds of places, Mm -hmm. churches and clubs and beaches or whatever. And there was a lot of preaching, you know, and, uh, stuff like that mixed in with the music and even with the lyrics of it. So, um, you know, so that, to me, that was all kind of the same thing. And so over the years, uh, you know, through study and, and, you know, going to school and this and that and the other, I, I uh, you know, I gradually became, you know, a minister. I mean, I, my position still in the denomination that I'm part of is, is a, a cultural missionary. Mm. And my, my job uh, to articulate it is even though I'm currently serving, uh, helping to pastor a, a Lutheran church. Um, but my job is to basically outfit believers who are engaged in the arts to do so in a, in a really deep biblical, meaningful way that also engages the culture and to engage the culture itself with the gospel and sort of be a paradigm for that mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, I mean, I, I still preach and teach regularly and stuff like write books and 
so forth. So that's all part of the same thing. Well, and, and you've also done a lot of work uh, with missions as well. You talked about uh, a little bit about mission. Uh, I forget the word you used, but if I remember rightly, you've done a lot of work in Asia and Africa as well. Isn't that correct? Well, actually I have, but that's primarily my father. Oh, okay. Um, when I was, you know, not long after uh, I was 15 and this whole revival thing broke out, my dad, um, who was a Christian, However, he wasn't, he wasn't really living the way he should or anything. Mm. He was involved in uh, witchcraft oh. and so forth. And the spiritual reality in our house was kind of tense, yeah. not between me and dad, but between the spiritual forces around there. And my father repented publicly before the church. He was actually a deacon of uh, some of his witchcraft practices. And, and then he began to be uh, led by God to... First, he was a, he was a coach at a at a San Antonio college, and he would lead tons of people uh, to Christ in his classes. At least sixty people a year, I guess. Oh. And then I gave him a book uh, by a friend of mine named Vishal Mangalwadi, who's a who's an Indian guy. Uh, it's called Truth and Social Action, and I gave it to Dad. He read the book, and when he finished the book, God said, "I want you to go to India." Oh. So dad, uh, you know, he, he went. And when he went, um, he saw the great need there. He came back, he took early retirement. And for some years he's been on, on the mission field, not only in India, but ultimately uh, in, in Africa, in okay. several countries in Africa. And my involvement in that has been, I did spend a, a good period of time over there with my father uh, in the nineties. Okay. So I went over to India for, for a while there. And that's, that may be what you're thinking about, yeah. although we have the same name. So people get confused about it, but yeah, I did spend, I spent a good, good deal of time over there in India, a, a prolonged period, uh, working with my dad and so forth. So, but I do think it's important. I still supported the, the album that I like the best that I've ever done. Um, uh, it's actually a, uh, it's a benefit album uh, for my father's uh, ministry. And, uh, and it's really just a, it's a setting of hymns. My dad had tried to get me to do a hymns album for years. And I was always, Dad, you know, the world needs another hymns record like it needs a hole in the head because <laughs> there's a bunch of great ones out there. I don't know, you know, why I would do that. And yeah. He kept saying, I, I think you're supposed to. And finally I said, well, okay, if I can, said, I won't change the lyric or the melodies. I don't like it when people do that. But I said, if you'll let me arrange it however I want to, then then I'll be happy to do that. And yeah. so so I did, and it turned out to be my the favorite thing I've ever recorded. So uh, is and that, it's, you know, is, is that Reliquarium? That's Reliquarium. That's yeah. exactly right. Uh, you know, my understanding in that was, uh, I mean, you know, I am I am a medievalist. I mean, I that's what I studied in school and so forth. And at the time, the medieval church, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, devotion of the believers was towards relics, you know, mm. the perceived pieces of the saints who had died before and so forth. When the Reformation happened, that devotion shifted, and their devotion was mainly expressed in, in songs and their hymns. So, 
I did all these post-Reformation hymns uh, because for the re for the Reformed people, the Protestants, those were their relics. Mm -hmm. So reliquarium is basically a setting of a bunch of post-Reformation hymns, uh, although a lot of it is very contemporary settings and so forth. can't hardly get better than some of these hymns that have been around for 400 years, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. I mean, I, I certainly, uh, you know, don't think that any songs that I've written compare with most of those. So, so it was really, it ended up being a great thing, you know. Yeah. I, I resisted my dad on that for a long time, but, <laughs> but, uh, but he was right all along, as is usually the case. Oh, those dads. <laughs> yeah, I know. They get smarter the older you get, you know. <laughs> Well, the reason I asked about the, your your involvement overseas is because I I I'm often intrigued by how international experience helps shape our music and how it shapes our understanding because our Western music is so different from what you'll find culturally everywhere and it, it, unfortunately I think some of our foreign friends are are trying to embrace Western culture to the detriment of their own his, history but. My point is, how did your time in India and some of these other places affect your music? Well, I was already pretty heavily into what was at the time called world music. Uh, I had been for a long time because, and mainly by way of the medieval or early music, mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of the medieval music was very Eastern sounding yeah. because of the Crusades and trade with, with Muslim Spain and so forth. And so... I had already for years been playing oud and a lot of the Middle Eastern instruments and stuff and, and uh, you know, had, had paid really close attention to music from all over the world. Yeah. So in some ways, uh, it, it, it was what I expected it to be, but it was, you know, of course, a little headier when you're, you know, kind of someplace in India and, and uh, you know, you hear hear them actually playing yeah. sitar and all these things together. So um, I guess you could say it did open up some possibilities to me, but but uh, I kind of was already there before I went. Gotcha. You know what I mean? I happen to be on your mailing list, and uh, you send out a very regular post, at least right now we're talking about uh, how evangelical Christians have kind of lost the uh, their way in when with regards to arts yeah. and so forth. Uh, talk a yeah. little bit. Talk a little bit about what that means to you. Um, well, uh, it means a couple of things. Um, you know, for centuries in the West, the church dominated the arts. Yeah. Not only in terms of content, which is the way most modern Christians think about that, but even in terms of its forms and changes and and so forth and so on. And uh, and that was 
you know, it's true in our culture up until relatively recently, up until, you know, probably the 40s or the 50s uh, of the last century. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but, but uh, part of the problem with that is, is that uh, if you don't, if you don't view the world correctly uh, through a, you know, creedal kind of understanding, and all the creeds are summations of biblical doctrine mm -hmm. about the Trinity and the Incarnation, then you start seeing the world as being split in a way, mm -hmm. uh, which, which uh, the term dualism is normally what's applied to that. Okay. And, you know, I think that... Uh, I think that generally speaking, that the the Christians, because of some sort of uh, pernicious misunderstandings and so forth, it's caused them to uh, to lose kind of the grip on what the world is really like through a biblical kind of uh, viewpoint and what they're supposed to do, and and a lot of that has to do with the scope of holiness. Mm -hmm. um, what is the scope of holiness? I, me I remember when I uh, when I did the Radio Halo album uh, in the Christian Marketplace, which, like I said, we'd been we'd been playing in clubs for years right. before we were approached uh, by people who found out what we were doing, and and we were filling up clubs and stuff like that with uh, with these pretty straight ahead Christian things, and and uh, you know I remember having a conversation with uh, with a record label executive who was listening to the music because a lot of those things we had recorded as, as pretty much album quality demos and right. stuff. And, yeah. And, and he said, well, uh, you know, I really like the album and everything. He said, but, but what, what kind of, uh, what song on there is, uh, is actually evangelistic. Hmm. And, and I said, well, every song on there, <laughs> I said, I don't, I don't, I said, the problem, and I told him, I said, the, the problem that I perceive in America is not that people don't know how to become a Christian. It's that they don't know why in the world they would want to become a Christian mm. because all it represents to them is a form of escapism. And I said, the songs on the Radio Halo album, every one of those tried to address real world situations in terms of biblical principles. You know, our idea about this, which which we saw played out in the clubs and, and amongst the pagans and stuff like that was, you know, that people are dying for answers yeah. about all of life. And if all you tell them is how to escape this life, mm. then they think Christianity is irrelevant. And, you know, I told them, I said, uh, I said, so I guess the way you're looking at it, none of them are, <laughs> but from the way I'm looking at it, they, they all are. Yeah. And it turned out that I, I'd forgotten there was, there's one song on there that's pretty, pretty straight ahead, uh, evangelistic called "Straw Man." But, but, uh, but you know, I, that's that's to me that's kind of the problem is just telling someone how to escape from the world instead of telling them that you know God has spoken into the world through His Son in such a way that He's given us a revelation, and that revelation speaks to every area of life. Yeah. And every area of life should be uh, under the lordship of Christ and there are principles involved in that. And I said, you know, I, I wanted this album because we weren't going and playing in churches where they had these particular ideas. We were going and playing to people who, you know, 
who had who were, had needs and desires and, and whose misunderstanding put them in desperate straits. Yeah. And I said, you know, the, the people who converted under that particular ministry, they did so understanding that Jesus had answers for all of life, not just for escaping mm. from this world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, that was, that was actually taken pretty well by that particular record executive. It didn't end up going with his label at that <laughs> point in time, but, but not because of that, it was right. just uh, other circumstances. But it was, I've had that conversation. I, I don't know how many times I've had that conversation. I used to have that conversation when we were playing in clubs and stuff. People go, well, why are you out there playing the, in those pagan places? And I was like, well, who the heck do you think needs to hear the gospel? Yeah. yeah. You know, I got to get out of the salt shaker. And, uh, you know, I mean, I understand, you know, people flake out, but I said people flake out in churches all the time too. Yeah. And Jesus said, I came to not to heal the healthy, but to heal the sick. And you've got to go where the sick are. And share That's exactly them. right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, you know, the other thing is, is that uh, although the church has its own culture, you know, I think that the church is supposed to be a culture-changing entity. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're, we're not born without a culture. We're all born into a culture. And that culture is, is meant to be the, the, the place where God has caused us to be born and born again and stuff. We're supposed to apply the biblical principles to that culture and change it so that it becomes godly. So the good things in that culture, you know, are held up and applied to the kingdom of God, you know, and, and only the sin is put to the side and so forth. So, you know, um, sometimes people have difficulty understanding that, but it seems to me that that's, that that is the gospel. And it says it, you know, God so loved the world. Mm-hmm. It didn't mean that he just loved us escaping the world. It meant that he wanted to see the world changed yeah. through Christ, and that's that's a, a different animal, you know. And and I think most of those articles that you're referring to, uh, my blog posts, yeah, uh, that's really what it's what it's taken up with. I mean, we a lot of people read the Bible and stuff like that, but they don't they don't think about the implications of it uh, because they're they mainly live in a in a faith that is predominantly escapist, mm. and I think. God wants us to change the world. I think he wants to see the kingdom of God expand and not just individuals, but families and institutions and everything be changed for his glory. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of more my perspective on that. Well, let's, let's look at this. uh, You know, this last year has been such a divisive time, not only in our country, but in our world. Right. How do you see us as, I mean, we as Christians, I think a lot of our Christian circles are trying to circle the wagons and protect themselves, but how do you see us being involved in making change when the world is so divided right now? And, and what does that look like? There's only, there's only one thing we could do, and that is us as individuals and us as a people, us as the church, you know, we have to live out the gospel at cost, if necessary, you know. And uh, what do you mean by at cost? Well, um, you know, for instance, a lot of states uh, closed down the churches. I mean, literally closed down yeah. the churches. I, part of the reason I never moved out of Texas, in case you're wondering, is because they didn't—they don't do that here, and they <laughs> right. wouldn't do that here. Right. 
right? So if you ask me, that's a solid advantage. Mm. But, uh, but you know, uh, and people allowed themselves to be put off of ministry and stuff because of their fear. I mean, when there have been real pandemics in the past, you know, the influenza mm-hmm. pandemic that happened in the first or last uh, century and, and centuries before that, the waves of black plague and stuff. Mm-hmm. And before that, even in the Roman Empire, when the plagues would come through, the Christians would put themselves at risk to go help people, yeah. you know, and not just to hide. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that it's telling that so much of the church, uh, you know, shrinks back in fear, and I won't even go worship. Yeah, in the face of this, and I, I think how can how can a non-believer think that that's worthwhile? That going and worshiping God and knowing about God is worthwhile when the Christians are all hiding. Wow, they they've got to draw the conclusion that that doesn't mean very much. Yeah, I mean because they're they're pagans, they're not stupid. Right. They're right. pagans. Right. And they draw logical inferences from from the stuff that they see. So, you know, there's that. And, of course, you know, there's still, I mean, we can't forget that, uh, you know, there's 3,000 babies a day killed in America. Yeah. A day. You know, and we're, we're now millions into that. The, you know, um, I, I think that God still judges nations. And the church should be solidly in terms of its repentance and vote according to that and and unashamedly preach the truth about whatever kind of situation it is yeah. uh, while doing so in love. And I mean, that's what Paul said, right? You've got to speak the truth right. in love. Right. I never had any problem playing in clubs to, you know, I mean, I live in a big city, the fourth biggest city in the United <laughs> States. Right. I play in the clubs here, you know, drug use and prostitution and, and, you know, sexual perversion and all that kind of stuff. It's all going on all the time here. I mean, this is one of the hubs for sexual trafficking in the whole continent. So, you know, I'm not, that's not lost on me yeah. that that happens. And I went amongst those people, you know, and many of whom respect us just for the quality of our music and stuff like that. But, but the fact that we actually cared about them and didn't like, you know, you know, try to tell them they're worthless or anything because of those things. But, you know, we preached the gospel and cared about them. And if they needed help, you know, they came to us and so forth. I mean, you know, we didn't, we didn't go into a ghetto culture and hide ourselves. Yeah. Instead, we stepped into the culture at large where there was real need, you know, and we're willing to tell them the truth. And, you know, nobody hated us because of that. I mean, I don't know how many times, even sister bands would be sitting around mocking Christian radio or, or something like that. And then they would look at us and remember that we were Christians and say, well, that's not y'all, man. Mm. You know, y'all are like real Christians and wow. stuff. But they had disdain for the church at, at large, um, you know, because for them, Christianity was about some ghetto culture that didn't have anything to do with anything except hiding and escaping. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of think that I kind of think that the the church should gird up its loins and read the Bible and do those things at whatever cost. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of what I mean by that. I think a lot of our 
corporate things that we do as Christians is to, oh, we're going to go help solve this problem or we're going to go help do this, but it's still, we're kind of holding back in our own communities and saying, well, this is something that I outreach, outreach. And it's not a change in attitude for how we live our daily lives. And if we look at what Jesus did, he was, you know, he was eating with tax collectors, he was hanging out with prostitutes, he was, but he wasn't preaching at them, he was just loving them, being in community with them and showing them what he was all about. That's exactly right. And I think that's I think that's part of our issue is we're trying to go out and change the world, change the world, when Jesus is the only one that can change the world. That's exactly right. You know, we're supposed to be salt and light, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, you know, you do that just like Jesus did. He met, he met needs. Yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, I can't tell you how many people who, who didn't even really care about believing the gospel or anything, but when they were in trouble, we're who they came to get mm-hmm. because, you know, they knew that we cared about them. And so, you know, a lot of those people ended up converting, you know, which, which was always been true for the church. It was yeah. true for the church in the Roman empire. You know, when the plagues, like I said, hit, they went and, and, and uh, took care of the sick. Yeah. And I guarantee you, everybody who, recovered, embraced Christianity, and people understood that the Christians cared enough about people to put their lives in jeopardy, or, or when they hid under the bridges and people threw the babies off to kill them and they gathered them up and raised them as their own yeah. and stuff like that. You know, people notice stuff like that and they ask about it. You know, it, it, to me, it's, it's, it's interesting that there's so much effort put into preaching the gospel when if you just live it, people come asking you, you don't have to, you don't have to beat down the door to tell, you know. I love that quote. We don't have to preach it. We have to live it. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember at one point I was really struggling with how do I share my faith? I'm not, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not somebody who can get up and preach and all that kind of stuff. And right. I forget who it was that said, but Dave, your job is not to save people. Your job is not to forgive people. Your job is not to heal people. That's, that's God's job. You're just supposed to love. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I, as a matter of fact, I, I read a quote. When did I read it? I guess I, I read this just maybe today I read that, um, in which, you know, he was, oh, here it is. I'm trying to find it on my phone as I'm talking and, yeah. and so forth. But, uh, but, you know, he made a quote about, um, about how, uh, about, about how, you know, if it's basically kind of the same thing we've been talking about, if people will just do what they're, what they should do, what they're called to do in the Bible, um, you, God uses that, you know, God, it's because it's God who calls people to believe it's God who, you know, calls people to sacrifice and it's God who calls people to change their lives and repent of sins and so forth, you know, and we tend to think that there's a, a technique to that, <laughs> yeah. but you know, we're, we're made in the image of God and he's a big mystery, which means every one of us are little mysteries huh. and to have the hubris to think that, that we could come up with some sort of a technique that would 23 skidoo somebody into that is just, it's just whack. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, because only God knows how to change people. And he, he calls us, like you said, he calls us to do 
to be who we are supposed to be and do what we're supposed to do. And he will use that. Yeah. But he's, he's the guy who understands the psychology of every person and knows their needs and knows how to change them and stuff. I mean, he's gracious enough to use us as, as the means to that a lot of times. But when it comes right down to it, God saves people and we don't. Yeah. Well, and that's actually very freeing to me, at least. I don't have to worry about it's my job anymore. I just, you know, God's, like you said, God's for some reason using us, but we don't have to have the magic potion. We don't have to have that formula. He gave us the formula, and that's love. And that's it's just incredible to me and freeing for me to say, hey, I can now share who I am because I am who God made me to be. You know, even thinking in terms of your life as a failure or not a failure, I, I like to point out to people that the guy who, there was a guy that I read about, and he and he taught Sunday school for years of his life, and he only saw one convert, but that was Billy Graham. Yeah. And the only guy he ever went to the Lord. But, you know, we, a lot of times we may think our lives are, are failures, but, but we don't know. You know, we don't know what our lives are failures or, or how they're succeeding or how important they are, you know, which is why Jesus says, let, you know, let your light so shine. And that's what our job is. And he, he can dispel the darkness through that. Well, every Saturday we send out a newsletter to several hundred people now that are signed up to pray for artists and musicians and pastors. And how can we be specifically be praying for you guys in the weeks and months ahead? You know, I, I think that uh, you know if, if y'all would pray that the you know the ministry stuff that I'm doing, both with music and and uh, and the teaching stuff, would be as effective as it could be in light of what God wants it to be. I, I don't think I could ask for more than that. Uh, we, we get uh, considerable satanic resistance on these fronts, which tends to make me think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. But uh, I would be grateful if people would pray about that. Thank you for joining Kemper and me for our conversation today. I hope you found some encouragement and maybe even a challenge or two to make sure that you are doing all you can to share God's love with the world. Our world today is really struggling with things like cancel culture, political correctness, watering down the gospel so we don't offend anyone. To me, it's a real shame, and in my opinion, the church is letting that culture shift how we work as people of Jesus and follow Jesus' teachings. We're watering down the gospel. We shouldn't be letting that happen. And I appreciate how Kemper stated that the church is supposed to be changing our culture and not letting culture change our church. You know, Jesus spent a lot of time talking about our role as culture changers. In Mark 12, he says that loving our neighbor is one of the two greatest commandments of all time. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus states that we are not to condemn or judge other people. In James chapter 2, we're taught to show mercy to everyone and not to show favoritism. Now, a lot of these teachings seem to be kind of anti-culture today, and I think that's a problem. If the church is going to be a culture changer, we need to be sure, or dare I say, I need to be sure that I am treating my community and the people around me in the way that Jesus would treat them. 
It all comes back to Jesus' teaching in the Bible. And I really appreciate Kemper's pushing our thoughts that way. How do we be sure that the church is changing culture? As always, thanks for joining me for this conversation today. I am grateful that we get to spend this time together each week hearing stories of God's amazing faithfulness. As a regular listener to this podcast, would you mind taking a few minutes and rating it on your favorite podcast app? Reviews and ratings really help spread the word so that other folks can hear about these great conversations. And if you have comments or questions for me, please feel free to drop me a message on any of the social media platforms. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon by searching for at CCMExchange. Or you can always drop me an email on the website ChristianMusicArchive.com. I'm really looking forward to our time together next week when I have another great conversation with one of the musicians you'll find on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. So until then, remember this, God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you. <laughs>